Hello and welcome to the Novel Hand Podcast. My name is Natasha Chisholm, and this is the third week of our impactful series on avocados. Today, I'm sitting down with Maddie Godbrath, the coordinator for international programming at Washington University in St. Louis. In addition to being the coordinator for international programming, Maddie is the instructor for the Global Citizenship Program, a program on campus that focuses on geography, globalization, and discussing refugee and immigration policy. And she's also the staff advisor for Sigma Iota Rho, an organization on WashU's campus that brings together students who are interested in global issues and focuses on promoting international awareness. Fun fact, I met Maddie through the Global Citizenship Program, and the program furthered my interest in the issues that we will be discussing today on cultural appropriation, solidarity, and white saviorship. So, hi Maddie. So, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, In GCP, we discussed at length cultural identity and expression. So, to tie these ideas into avocados, how important is food to um, cultural identity? Yeah, I think uh, this is like one of the most, uh, one of the topics I think I'm most passionate about in life, honestly, is like the importance of food and how it um, really connects to so much more than just like what you eat um, and that like uh, scientific aspect. And so if you think about like all the, just the time that goes into the idea of food, so like time spent planting, like harvesting, cooking, eating with others, Um, that's like a huge aspect of, you know, where you spend your time matters and how you are formulating yourself and your culture. Um, then you think also about like the ways that food is shared in exchange. So it can be shared freely through hospitality of just like having somebody over and offering them a free meal or shared potluck style where everybody contributes like something of their own, or it can be bought in the market through monetary exchange. And so like those different ways of exchange really highlight underlying values in, in different cultures. And then also like you have the idea of the knowledge that's shared through food. Um, so whether that's practices handed down uh, through cultures and like developed by different cultures or recipes handed down through your families. Um, so I think like all those things are just like little tidbits, but um, overall it's like really hard to overestimate the impact and importance that food has on cultural identity. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, and also just to kind of tie this into space, place and imagined borders, um, how do you think that this uh, idea is connected to that? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting um, question, but as our world it becomes more and more connected and globalized, I think it's simultaneously easier to think we are experiencing a bit of another culture or country or region through food, not native to our own land or heritage, but because food has been so commodified for the market specifically, it begs the question, like, are we really experiencing an authentic part of other identities and places, or are we just experiencing the part that has proven to be profitable and therefore been harnessed by global capitalist markets? Um, and so I think in many instances, it seems that we fool ourselves into thinking we are being like worldly and open-minded by eating all these foods from different cultures. Um, but we often don't know the cultural significance and history behind these foods. We don't know if they are actually authentic or if like they have been Americanized. And finally, and I think most importantly, um, we very rarely realize the harm that importing all of these non-native foods can have on the export locations 
um, their populations and also just the global environment, like natural environment due to non-sustainable farming and shipping practices that are carried out specifically to keep up with global demand for like, quote, quote, like exotic foods. Um, and I think in our minds, we etch these borders that food helps us cross without needing to travel, which is like, for those who don't have the privilege of traveling, like really cool. But at the same time, those same borders are erased, or sometimes even inconceivable in the first place, in our minds, when it comes to recognizing and reckoning with the impact that the food choices that we make have on the rest of the world. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up like the commoditization of food, because I honestly think that that's what like a main reason why um, people have this idea that like culture needs to be protected, especially against the market too. And I think that the concepts of space, place and imagined borders, they sort of define like these mental boundaries, as you stated, and it really just ties into like people trying to directly preserve their cultural cultural identity um, and in particular food in this case. So I'm gonna tie this into the second question. In conducting research for this series on avocados, I found that avocados were cultivated and used extensively by the Aztecs. And upon um, European colonizers finding the fruit, they deemed it poor people's food, but it's interesting now seeing like people are calling mm -hmm. it the world's green gold, the world's treasure, right? Mm -hmm. So tying the idea again of um, expression and defining what the avocados meant, um, you know, to, to the Aztecs particularly, um, is there a degradation of culture with avocados being used so much in other food without people really understanding the history? Yeah, I think like I haven't studied like in extensively like different um, histories of like avocados um, other than, you know, kind of like where they come from and like the linguistic um, meanings of the word, um, especially like in Mexico. Um, but I think like cultural degradation aside for like a second, it, the larger issue in my eyes, at least, is the negative health and like economic and environmental impacts that higher demand for avocados has on the places and populations where avocados are grown. Um, and some degradation of culture like might occur um, as a side effect. So like I'm thinking like something as simple as like not being able to prepare a dish in the traditional way or as frequently as um, somebody might have in the past because avocados are too expensive now. Um, but for me, like, that's just like a, a bad, like cherry on top of all these other things um, that like really impact the, the, like the lives, uh, not to say like culture isn't like impacting lives, but like the literal like health of um, a community and making it so that like a farmers cannot survive or are experiencing like very negative health side effects. Um, those things are like bigger um, in my mind as somebody who's far away. So um, I think a similar thing like happens um, with quinoa and the Andes mountains as is happening with the avocado where, um, you know, it's this very like key nutritional grain um, for a lot of people in the Andean mountains. Um, and it's essentially been removed from the diet of many Andean farmers because they can't afford to eat it instead of sell it because it's so valuable around the world today because we've like become in love with it for like it's high protein um, content and whatnot. And, and so like, we're not just taking away part of their culture 
but we're also quite literally like harming their health and their livelihoods. Yeah. And, and I completely agree with you on that front too, because I know in the rotten episode that I watched on avocados, it talked about like Chilean farmers and Mexican farmers having experiencing like really bad droughts and like, at least in Chile, the water being privatized and a lot of the farmers not even being able to um, upkeep their farmland or like even villagers not being able to have as much water as they need to survive and having it to um, at least in certain provinces that they interviewed and, and certain villagers in the documentary they like talked about a truck coming in like once every week and for them to have this water um this specific mm -hmm. amount of water so it's it's just crazy to see that and um at least like talking about like food being like a major cultural appreciator i think that not knowing it's like histories and caring about certain issues like labor equality or like you know the water shortages in chile and things like that um it's like appropriating certain aspects of the culture um and not and then really ignoring the parts that like don't directly affect the consumer as you kind of um stated um yeah and but i would also like to think about like another concern maybe for more of the viewers to think about who are listening to the podcast right now about the dynamic between the consumers in the market and I'm so happy that you bring up a lot of the dynamics because I really didn't think about it before um, with researching um, th for this series. Um, like in the US, I know that there are so many different cultural foods that are altered, for instance, to be less spicy or like add more vegetables and you know alter the food just generally to appear more healthy. And at least for me, I wonder if this is like an acceptable way to consume cultural food or again, if it just plays into the factor of like, trying to cater to consumer needs, as you kind of pointed out before. Yeah, I think like the, like the bottom line for me is like, it's not bad to like allow foods to be changed with, um, with time and with like the, uh, I guess the environments that they're encountering, like, um, but the bigger question is, like what is the impact of, of those like changes and transformation on those food ways. Um, and I think one thing that I constantly try to remind myself is of like, where are these goods coming from? And so like, if I can, you know, if I make a, um, say, say I'm making a taco, like I make like different fun types of tacos all the time, um, that are definitely like not traditional tacos. Um, but I'm using like local ingredients, local to like St. Louis, Missouri, that I get from like my local crop box. Um, to me, like that's like a fun way and like a beneficial way of combining like traditional Mexican cuisine with what I have available here in St. Louis, Missouri. And that seems to be like a much healthier and like, I guess, um, yeah, overall, like more beneficial way of combining cultures through food than say like, um, you know, making a taco, like an Asian taco fusion using like something that I shipped all the way from, you know, like it, someplace in Asia to, to, to make this happen. Um, that's just like, yeah, you're trying to combine cultures, but at the same time, you're increasing like your negative impact um, on shipping and, and environment. Yeah, and I, I really like your answer because I love how you tied in the idea of, of sustainability and being an ethical consumer as well. So I appreciate that. 
Um, so I want to tie this again into the idea of solidarity and charity. I know that we talked a lot about it in GCP. And I was wondering if you could define these two terms for the listeners and also explain how these terms play a part in cultural appreciation versus um, cultural appropriation. Yeah, um, and so you, you'll remember from GCP, but I use this like imagery. So I'm certainly not a math person, but I do like the imagery of like using a standard like XY graph from you know like high school math. And charity can be like two parallel lines on the graph. And then solidarity is an asymptote that like grows increasingly closer and closer to like the X and Y axes. Um, And so like charity is the act of giving or working for. Um, And there's always a giver and a receiver. So there are two separate lines that will always be separate if charity is all that is done to address like the differences or that gap between the two lines. And solidarity is the act of like working with um, in community with others, which inherently necessitates trying as hard as one can to narrow the gap between one person or group or cultural um, and the other. Um, So it's an asymptote getting closer and closer and closer to the axis. Um, And so with respect to cultural appreciation versus appropriation, um, I think it's truly like it is impossible to truly appreciate a culture without building solidarity with the people and places of that culture first. Otherwise, as an outsider, you're taking visible facets of a culture for their face value as advertised by the media and the market without learning why they're important from the people themselves and like the history behind those things. Um, and so without spending time to talk with people or visit the places or like at the very least do some really good research, um, if the lived experiences aren't accessible for you, you end up appropriating pieces of a culture without any sort of mutual exchange between you and that, like the, the people of that culture. And so it becomes like a one-way street, like charity is where you're, you actually are the receiver and the others are the givers, uh, or perhaps like you perform some sort of monetary transaction in which you pay for like a Hannah tattoo or like a cheesy tour. And there are still no solidarity bonds formed because the money negates any sense of like communal obligation that you would have um, to each other as humans encountering each other, like in, in the flesh. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for that explanation. And honestly, I think um, I'm going to borrow your um, math analogy <laughs> when I'm helping like, <laughs> like teach the um, new GCPers on Tuesday. Um, yeah. And I honestly think that like, at least for me, when I was first learning about solidarity and charity, um, it was just really easy to see how the lines are blurred um, between the two, because like, I don't know, they seemed really similar to me, but I think this explanation helped clear up like so many discrepancies that even I had in the past. Um, So I appreciate that. Um, So again, these terms really play into parts of volunteerism and white saviorship. And I was wondering if also for the viewers, you could explain what white saviorship is and how do you avoid accidentally acting out on these sort of attributes when interacting with another culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess first off, I should explain that I am in fact a white woman. Um, And so like I speak 
the, the following as like my own experience and also like my experience, like from like personal actions, but also my experience from like studying and also observing um, other like white individuals. But I think white saviorism starts with the concept of white exceptionalism, which is the assumption, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that white people white culture has all the right answers and does everything the best, most efficient and most productive way. And we as white people tend to believe that if everyone could just do everything the way that we do it, all of their like problems, quote, quote, like as defined by us will disappear. Uh, And so the saviorism comes in when we see it as our obligation to help them conform to our way of living or to save them from their own inferior ways. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And, and um, how would you avoid uh, accidentally acting up on some of these traits of white saviorship? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think my automatic response is just like, shut up and listen. Um, I think that is what I have to continually remind myself. I do like, I, I like to talk, like I'm an extroverted individual Um, and so that can be hard for me because I always want to, and I'm also a verbal processor. And so I always want to, to speak. Um, and so I think just reminding myself like constantly, okay, like I think one of our GCP classes introduced me to the phrase, like take space, make space. Um, and so I'm always kind of trying to remember like to make space. Um, and I think also like the idea of practicing humility, um, and remembering that I do not have the answers, um, Like rarely do I think that any of us have the answers. Um, I think that usually it comes like in a communal, like working together um, to find something that's as close to the answers we can get. Um, But certainly, certainly I I don't have all of the answers. And so a lot of times it's just better for me to shut up and listen. Okay, well, thank you for that explanation. Um, And I know at least one way that we kind of talked about before to express appreciation to a culture is to really connect to the language and learn from the people, as you've stated. So how has language, um, specifically your experience with learning Spanish and interacting with like Latin culture, um, impacted your ability to interact with people when you were working with, um, I'm really going to butcher this because I don't know (laughs) Spanish, but uh, Corporación de Viviendas del Hogar de Cristo um, in Ecuador. Yeah, that was like almost perfect. Like I have no corrections on that pronunciation. Um, yeah, I think again, uh, <laughs> it, it, it helped me shut up and listen a little bit. Um, so my role there was, I was like in the community development, not, um, I guess division. And uh, so obviously that's like a really like, uh, I don't know, like abstract um, office to be in as a non-native language speaker. And so I was often involved in these like strategic planning meetings with these employees, um, like Ecuadorian employees. And uh, I could follow along well enough to everything that was going on and what they were talking about. And even like well enough to have my own ideas uh, that maybe I would have liked to have shared um, because this is, you know, kind of the type of work that um, I can see myself going into in the future. And so I was very passionate about these and I, I loved being able to witness this, um, this work where I was living. Uh, but the language provided me with just the right amount of hesitation. And so in moments that I would want to speak, I would have to like formulate what I wanted to say in my mind first 
And then by the time I did, someone not white, not not me, um, would have proposed another idea or comment that was just as good, usually better um, as to like what I had. And so that hesitation also gave me the time to remember that I was temporary there. You know, like I lived there for a year. I was working there for a year. Um, and I was there specifically to like learn and absorb and listen and try and build solidarity. I wasn't there to like give my input and, you know, provide them with professional help um, as a newly post-grad um, individual. Uh, definitely like they did not need my my input in that way. Um, I was a bunch of professionals who had been working in the field for years and who were native to Ecuador. Yeah, I, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you must have gained so many like amazing listening skills and traits and things like that. <laughs> that whole experience. <laughs> um, so as a summary of what we talked about, what should the viewers keep in mind when engaging with different cultures, like making sure not to cross into the lines of uh, cultural appropriation? Yeah, I think um, one thing that a mantra that I always say, uh, which is like kind of hard to grapple with, uh, but I always say intentions don't matter. Um, and I feel like a lot of people tell you the opposite of like, oh, but like you meant well. Um, but I'd say intentions, intentions don't matter as much as we would like to think they do. Um, because if you're harming, you're harming. That's that's just the bottom line. So just because your intention of buying an avocado is to make your homemade Mexican meal more authentic, that doesn't mean that you should do it. Like, think about what, what your intentions are and whether those intentions, like whether doing so is doing more harm than is doing good. And then I think the, the second thing would be like to keep asking why. Um, and so when you're experiencing aspects of a culture that isn't your own, don't just eat something because it's delicious or like listen to music because it's good to dance to or wear clothes because they're fashionable, et cetera. Like encourage yourself to learn about the values and the history and the literally like the lives that are flowing within these external pieces of culture. And if you're fortunate enough, explore these like deeper parts of cultures from the people and places themselves and even if you can't travel to Mexico to like learn how to cumbia dance, find people in your own community who can help you strengthen your bond of solidarity with the cultures that you desire to dive into. Um, because that's the real benefit of, of globalization these days is the ease that we have to other people different from ourselves who can show us new ways of thinking about the world and new things to appreciate about the world. Um, we get distracted by like the things and the items that globalization gives us access to instead of like the people and the lived experiences that we have access to and all the things that they carry and can like the places that they can take us. And with that, I want to thank you, Maddie, for joining me today and taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk about um, these issues with me. I learned a lot from this whole conversation. So thank you. Yeah. I think I, I learned a lot too, honestly. It was really good to like be able to, to think these things through and um, talk about it in a new format. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Novel Hand Podcast. This is the third episode in our impactful series on avocados. 
and it was really great sitting down with Maddie and discussing these issues of cultural appropriation, solidarity versus charity, and white saviorship. Be sure to check out the description for links to the impactful articles about avocados and our other podcast episodes. Also, stay tuned for next week for another weekly article and our fourth and final podcast episode in this impactful series. Mm-hmm.